Welcome to After School Democracy, the podcast that attempts to fill in the gaps you almost certainly missed in school about politics, economics, and history. In the last episode of this series, we discussed the fact that Marxism is not a prescription, but a descriptive critique of capitalism. The last episode pointed out the problems of capitalism. That's Marxism. What's the solution? Well, Marx believed while a business creator should have a larger share for creating a business, as that is hard work, after a certain point, it's the workers who made that business succeed. Therefore, they should own the means of production once they reach a certain level. That is assuming a business owner was even needed to start a business, and we could provide everything the same way without money, which is just another way for rich to acquire all the wealth and power and make everyone else their slaves. How this was organized is where leftism branches off, and we'll discuss those in a bit. He believed the march of time would make the factory workers and artisans called the proletariat rise up against the rich or bourgeois because there were way more of them than the owners. This was just going to be a natural progression. Capitalism was a natural progression away from feudalism, where the bourgeois had their revolution going from inherited power to a form of democracy called a republic. He encouraged the proletariat to support these revolutions and decimate the monarchies in feudalism so that there would be mechanisms to create the next revolution via voting and government. From there, the workers would seize the means of production, power and wealth would be redistributed, everyone would become a proletariat, and there would be a dictatorship of the proletariat via democracy of some variety, and since the proletariat had the numbers, this would be inevitable. Once workers owned the means of production, money was redistributed, and then things would begin to be systematically pre-distributed via union-owned factories and cooperative farms. Automation would keep expanding at a rate that didn't hurt the people and didn't boot them from jobs faster than they could organize because that organizing was already baked in. At a certain point, tech would get so advanced that basic needs were dirt cheap, called by modern economy economists the post-scarcity era. At this point, people could easily just put in as much work as they could provide and get all their needs met. He assumed that since people had lived for thousands of years in communes of feudal villages, that wasn't the natural way of things and people would return to that lifestyle that people were just coming out of in everywhere but the Americas. Except instead of feudal lords, the feudal commune would be owned and run by democracy. Hyper-local small governments are also referred to as communes, while the communes most known are the communal living spaces where people work, eat, sleep, and breathe very close to each other, and which one someone means can be confusing at times. In the early Communist Manifesto, he wrote about high hopes for the utopian big government that had never been seen before, but as he grew older, he became more skeptical of some of the problems with this and wanted a much more bottom-up approach near the end of his life. However, there were a lot of problems that needed to be overcome first before this would become even remotely a possibility, which is why there are so many versions of socialism and Marxism. When Marx wrote the manifesto, modern republics had only existed for less than 70 years. It was written in 1849, and America had been a republic for literally only 70 years, and France had just come through its bloody Republican Jacobin reign of terror, only to be taken over by Bonaparte and then replaced with kings again. Most of the world still lived as peasants and viewed kings as God-ordained for centuries. The ruling powers were ridiculously anti-Republican and used all the same smear tactics modern capitalists have used to damage the credibility of even the tiniest amount of government socialism, and most of the socialism we've had was only able to come about when couched in public defense terms. Sadly, getting Republic right is rough. 
How much freedom should we give the people? Well, in France, the free press was so free they got more and more radically incendiary that they worked the public up into a frenzy with sensationalized misinformation, and soon witch hunts without the correct right speaker, right signaling, could label you a traitor to the revolution, and you would become a sacrifice to Madame la Guillotine, even if you had started out as one of the prime movers of the revolution. How much power should the new republic have, and how should it be organized? The Committee for Public Safety in France ended up getting an insane amount of power, and after the stress of running the nation led to a nervous breakdown, Maximilien Robespierre emerged with a massive paranoia, and the Committee for Public Safety became a secret police to find people disloyal to the revolution, killing their political rivals and killing generals who failed left and right, like Darth Vader, even if they had strategically been set up to completely fail. After a time, and many violent failures, the model for a functioning representative democracy took shape, and people all over the world now have some form of republican government, except for that rare place where there is a monarchy. Yes, even North Korea is technically a republic, as a small class of non-royalists claiming to represent the country are in charge. The voting in a republic can be as big as universal suffrage, or as small as wealthy or party elites, as happened many times from ancient Rome to early France. The perfect ideal model for addressing what Marx spoke of has yet to arise. There have been many violent attempts and failures to meet all this criteria, but just like with republicanism, they were attempts nonetheless. The first attempt at socialism slash anarchism outside of the Jacobin Revolution was the Paris Commune. Under Napoleon's nephew, Napoleon III was elected as a populist, much like Trump, and became a dictator for life. Another failed attempt at a republic, where a strong man took a republican nation and turned it into a dictatorship. Unfortunately for the French people, he had a massive ego, and Otto von Bismarck, uniting Germany under nationalism, was able to goad him into declaring war via a fake telegram claiming that France was being insulted and mistreated. The press got wind of this stoking political pressure, and Napoleon took the bait declaring war thinking France would win. Spoilers, France did not. In fact, the Germans kicked their asses so badly, Paris was under siege all winter to the point that the rats were the only source of meat, and only the rich could afford rat meat. The government moved to Tours and pretty much abandoned Paris for the length of the war. In anger, the proletariat organized and created a communist-slash-anarchist state, run by these two factions. Upon an armistice, the Germans withdrew and the new Paris Commune was the quickest to rebound thanks to their ground-up organization of labor. The split came down to the communists, who said that they should attack the French government while they were weak, as they would never let Paris keep its sovereignty or system of government, while anarchists heavily influenced by Proudhon, who is these days referred to as a moderate anarchist or mutualist, believe that we should just focus on doing a good job for the people and do their own thing, and if they did a good job, that the French government would have no choice but to let them keep going. The Proudhonists ended up winning out, and by all accounts, it was probably the most kick-ass egalitarian and equal place in the entire world. Spoilers, the communists were 100% right. Their failure to attack Tours while it was weak and take over, or at least call a truce, gave the French military and government time to regroup. By that time, the fear of republicanism was dying. Napoleon III, at the end of his life and the war, gave up his power and returned the nation to a republic. But just as Marx knew, the bourgeois had already had their revolution and just like with the monarchs before them, could not abide a functioning system of government where they didn't have the most power and money, so they hated the Paris Commune so much that they even asked the German government that had just crushed them to come in and crush Paris, and the Germans were more than happy to, and with a combined force of French and German forces, they laid siege to Paris. 
Paris actually held out pretty well and no one starved. That's because food was well distributed. However, a former rich person ended up opening one of the city gates for the French army, and they went street by street massacring anyone with even remote links to leftist sympathies. Most Americans especially know nothing about this event. Knowing this can completely reshape your understanding of how leftists view liberals, including social liberals, and anything right of that. Without this piece of knowledge, nothing about leftist thought and action makes sense following the commune in 1871. From this slaughter of communists and anarchists, there grew a great anger and division between the two former comrade philosophies. Anarchists disagreed in a state entirely and aimed for Marx's end goal of hyper-localized government connected in a network of agreements, either through direct democracy or consensus building, while communists believed there must be a transition period where the state was used to make the transition slowly possible from Republican capitalist statism gradually into anarchist communism, all the while defending the revolution from outside interferences, just as they had so painfully learned under the Paris Commune that leftism was the new republicanism, and the global powers would stop at nothing to crush them and make them fail. The anarchs viewed these statists and their draconian measures as just as morally reprehensible as liberal republicanism, and they went their separate ways. Bismarck, breathing a sigh of relief, famously was quoted saying, "'Crowned heads, wealth, and privilege may well tremble should ever the black and red unite.'" Bismarck was very much a monarchist. We'll go into a few minor attempts at semi-successful anarchism, such as Catalonia and Ukraine, but other than that, the anarchists worked mostly at getting better labor organized, while some were so radicalized from the Paris Commune that they went around and bombed or shot people in power. And of course, just like with Muslims today, most were peaceful, but the press and government were quick to label them all terrorists, hunting them down and hanging or kicking out anyone with anarchist ideology, and knowledge of anarchism in the U.S. as a viable political philosophy was wiped from the American collective memory, even though without them, many of our labor rights and unions would have not existed. Until recently, anarchism was just viewed as a crazy idea for bleeding heart peaceniks or people who just want an excuse to be lazy and not bother to vote, at least in the U.S. To be honest, it's really hard to discover the truth about socialism, communism, and anarchism. Both the capitalists and the communists use propaganda, each biased in favor of their side and very uncharitable to the other side, often not representing them or their arguments as the other side sees it. Pretty much always a straw man. If I have said anything that you can debunk, please let me know, and if it's dramatic enough, I will upload a new video to cover it. So thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. I'm sure there was nothing controversial about this, and everyone will happily get along in the comments section, which you can do on the YouTube version of this video, or my Facebook page, After School Democracy. Link in the show notes. Just a reminder that I'm Anubis2814 on YouTube, and I have over 500 videos on different topics that I've made over the past 10 years. Please subscribe, and if your podcast site has the option, give me a like or review. If you think what I have to say informed you, consider supporting my Patreon. I'll be doing this podcast weekly and try to get it out on the same day, so I hope to see you here next week, ready to be filled with new ideas. Take care. This channel is helped tremendously by the generous supporters on Patreon. A big thank you to the wonderful Joe Taylor, Elias Garcia Guevara, and Ogrel for their support at the $10 a month Wapawet level. Please consider donating to my work if you can, and thank you all for listening.